0: Hey there, welcome back. This is Robert Fleming. You're listening to Elder Law Issues, the weekly podcast of Fleming and Curdy PLC, a Tucson, Arizona elder law firm. Uh, That firm consists of myself and two other partners, one of whom is Elizabeth Noble Rawlings Freeman, who's sitting across from me right now. Welcome back, Elizabeth.
1: Thanks, Robert. Happy to be here.
0: I thought today, Elizabeth, we'd talk about alternatives to guardianship. Kind of a hot-button issue and, uh, and a lot of discussion out there in the community about how you could avoid the guardianship process. But before we begin, I think we need a couple of disclaimers. We always try to remember to say... We are Arizona lawyers. We don't know the law in other states, except that maybe we have occasionally bumped into it, but we don't really know the law in other states. We kind of have a notion of what most other states do, but don't take our advice uh, for, your, for your non-Arizona case without consulting with a local lawyer. That's more important in guardianship and conservatorship than in most other areas of the law, because that is very state-specific. So that's disclaimer one. Disclaimer two is we're talking about guardianship, guardianship of the person in Arizona. We are not today talking about conservatorship, conservatorship of the estate. We are not talking about alternatives to conservatorship. There are a lot of issues there, and that's a topic for another day. But today, I just wanted to focus on alternatives to guardianship of the person in Arizona.
1: Wow, Robert. You've got me thinking.
0: All right. Well, that's the point of uh, of the intro is to get us get our creative juices going. So, uh, Elizabeth, first of all, when somebody calls our office and says, "I need to get a guardianship over my son or my mother or wh- whomever, uh, what what's the first thing that we start talking about?
1: Well, the first thing that we start talking about is collecting information about the person who you believe may need a guardian, because we want to know about that person's daily routine, about any kind of medical diagnosis he or she may have. We want to know, what, what does the person need a guardian to do? Is the person able to be clear about his or her preferences regarding care or treatment, medications? where he or she may be living so before we go right down the road towards a guardianship and talk about the court proceedings and what all of that entails we usually try and get more information about the person that somebody may be concerned about
0: and and we need to be very clear with our clients or the person who's who's talking about engaging us to get a guardianship that even if your son your mother your sister whoever it is Uh, meets the test for a guardianship, even if they're unable to make or communicate responsible decisions about themselves. We still don't go straight to guardianship. We still start talking about alternatives to guardianship, even in those kind of cases. Why not just do a guardianship, Elizabeth? Why not just uh, concede that guardianship is appropriate and we lawyers are going to get wealthier by doing it? Let's just do it.
1: Well, Robert, when we talk about a guardianship, we're really talking about the legal procedures that alter somebody's civil liberties. That's that's kind of the big picture here. When a guardian is appointed for someone, um, the court essentially is making a decision about the rights of the person who we it would call in this case a ward, um, the person whose rights are being changed or altered in some cases you may see limited guardianships which allow somebody to retain some rights but we're talking about things like the right to vote the right to drive and the ability to make decisions for yourself regarding care and treatment so at at its core you're essentially making a decision through the court regarding somebody's civil liberties and and that's a pretty serious thing
0: we at Fleming and Curdy and the system really value autonomy personal autonomy and self-control and if a guardian is appointed that's a a declaration by the system that the person no longer has that autonomy or that self-direction and even though it may be a kind of a theoretical removal of rights in some cases because maybe the person really doesn't have the ability to communicate at all it's still a real change and one that we don't rush into besides which there's the cost. Uh, clients who come to us and say, I want to get a guardianship for my son because he has a developmental disability and the Division of Developmental Disabilities told me I need to get a guardianship now that he's 18. We first start with, okay, are you ready to write a check for three to $5,000 or some number like that in order to go through this process? And oh, by the way, it's going to take a month and an attorney is going to be appointed for your son to to weigh in and ask him whether or not he wants to have a guardian and a court investigator is going to come out. Oh, we need to get a doctor's letter. There's a lot of machinery uh, related to getting a guardianship.
1: And, Robert, well. thinking it's only going to take a month is pretty ambitious, my friend. These days it's really taking closer 8 to 12 weeks to get a court hearing on a guardianship case. So let's go back to step one, which is asking questions about the person, right, his or her needs why somebody thinks a guardianship may be appropriate. When we when we start with those kinds of basic questions, one of the things we're trying to do is assess whether or not we think somebody may be able to create a healthcare power of attorney and advance directives. When we look at the capacity required, the standard of capacity required to create a healthcare directive, like a healthcare power of attorney, um, living will, things like that, It's a pretty low bar as far as capacity goes, Robert. You you don't need to know how to spell the president's name backwards and figure out what day of the week it is. Um, It's the questions that we ask and need to consider are far different when creating a power of attorney. So oftentimes we start there because if somebody has the capacity to create a healthcare power of attorney, he or she's really able to direct decisions around his or her own care and who may be helping with those decisions, that's a really good place to start. And our colleagues, Robert and Town, who work with us in this area of law, oftentimes can create powers of attorney for less than $1,000, which makes it a much more cost-effective process. And also, when we talk about efficiency, just make an appointment with an attorney and have that attorney make an assessment about capacity.
0: It is important to note that if you take your son, mother, sister, whoever it is, uh, to a lawyer for them to sign a power of attorney, if that lawyer is any good, they're going to meet with your son, brother, sister, mother alone. You're not going to be in the room. You're not going to be telling the lawyer what it is that they want or need to do. They do have to have a level of capacity to be able to articulate. Now, you can kind of leave a note with the lawyer that what what you're bringing your daughter in for is to talk about power of attorney but uh, but beyond that that's going to be a conversation between them and their lawyer not between you and their lawyer that's a kind of a difficult thing for people sometimes to uh, to recognize the significance of but uh, but I agree with you Elizabeth that the level of capacity that is required to sign a power of attorney is usually seen as lower than the level of capacity needed to make the underlying decisions. You think maybe, oh, my daughter really couldn't understand the significance of a decision to, to undergo surgery and, and uh, weigh the pluses and minuses and make a final decision. Well, okay, but that doesn't mean that she couldn't understand the notion of decision making and choose the person that she would, she would like to have make the decision for her.
1: I think that's well put, Robert. So when we talk about alternatives to guardianship, creating a power of attorney is certainly one of those things.
0: The other thing that's a big deal is that Arizona, and this is one of those places where state law is very different from state to state, but Arizona has what's called a surrogate decision-maker statute that says even if there's no guardian and no power of attorney, immediate family members normally have the power to make health care decisions for an incapacitated adult. Uh, And that can be a real powerful tool for navigating the healthcare system in some cases. Not every case, but in some cases.
1: Robert, in those cases, one of the things we need to consider, how do people communicate with each other? What are the family relationships there? Who are the outside advisors or supporters? Are they medical professionals? Are they extended members of family? Are they uh, next-door neighbors? You know, when we look at things like supported decision-making, one of the ways that that can be problematic is if there's really poor communication among supporters or advocates or there's a real difference of opinion. Those are cases where supported decision-making can sometimes include way too many cooks in the kitchen and, and on occasion create confusion, where the guardianship process, once a guardian is appointed, that person clearly has legal authority in the same way that when a healthcare power of attorney is created and somebody is fulfilling the role as agent, there's a clear responsibility and somebody who is acting in a fiduciary capacity. So supported decision making is something that I think is wonderful to talk about. I think that in practice, we have to see a variety of factors in order for that to be successful. And ultimately, in order for that to be successful, you want to see engagement from everybody concerned and involved, right? Not just the person and one advocate, but it's the circle of support around somebody to be able to look at that person's cues, behaviors, signals um, to help take a lead with supported decision-making.
0: We probably ought to define terms here. Supported decision-making is a, a mechanism where the family and caretakers and providers and medical community all come together and agree on the person or people who will who will speak for the person who has an incapacity and uh, and then it's usually formalized in a in a document uh, that is sort of an agreement with the person and it requires some level of capacity but maybe not even the level necessary to sign a healthcare power of attorney and and uh, and there are a number of states Arizona is not one of them that have formalized this idea of supported decision making in the statute and and uh, created it as a as a clear alternative to guardianship. That's been proposed in Arizona, but it hasn't passed the legislature yet, and so it's not a formal choice, but that doesn't stop people from coming together and and agreeing and even entering into a supported decision-making agreement in the appropriate case. It may not head off guardianship permanently, but it can certainly take care of short-term issues in Arizona, even though there's no statute.
1: Well, Robert, I think it's important for people listening today to think carefully about whether or not guardianship is appropriate. Ask questions, find an attorney who is well-suited to talk to you about these kinds of things. There are wonderful national organizations like the Special Needs Alliance that are fantastic national organizations that can connect people across the country with attorneys who really specialize in this practice area, talking about guardianship to somebody who may be, for instance, a real estate attorney or a bankruptcy attorney who doesn't have experience in this realm of, really, it's a subset of family law. It's um, real detailed and nuanced in some ways, so make sure you get specific advice.
0: Absolutely. And advice from somebody in your community. I I don't think we want to generalize about what might happen in other states, except to this extent, if the lawyer you consult about guardianship doesn't start with, well, hang on, are there some alternatives that we could talk about? If they don't say that, then maybe you need to shop around for somebody who is a little bit more sophisticated and, and experienced in the guardianship arena. That said... Arizona law only, guardianship only for today, and, uh, and remember that your mileage may vary. I'm Robert Fleming. I've been talking with Elizabeth Noble Rawlings Freeman. We are two of the partners at the Tucson, Arizona Elder Law Firm of Fleming and Curdy PLC. This is Elder Law Issues, our weekly podcast, and we hope you'll join us again next week. Thanks.